And if you have your Bible with you, get it out to Psalm 119. If you don't have a Bible, we have a number of those uh, in the lobby uh, and would encourage you to look on uh, a copy and have your eyes on a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, And feel free to take that home with you. Uh, So Psalm 119 is where we're going to be this morning. Last week we began a new series, a five-week series, around this idea of faithful church. Uh, Faithful church. What does a faithful church look like? And that's really our endeavor over the course of last week and this week and the coming three weeks after that is to unpack, not exhaustively, but what exactly uh, you would see in a faithful church with respect to what we see in God's word. And so if you'll bear with me for a moment, I want to run back uh, for just a minute to last week as really it is, it's foundational to the whole of our series, but also really uh, foundational uh, to where we're going this morning and helping us to understand what God has for us. And so last week we talked about the idea that a faithful church loves God. That the, that the foundational piece of, of a healthy church, a faithful church, a church that is moving forward in a way that is bringing glory and honor to Jesus Christ, starts with a group of people that loves God. And we talked specifically about that, that that, that was a love um, <clears throat> or the love of God that consumes us. That to the very depth of our being, to the core of our souls, that we love the person of God. But, but not only in that sense, but also that this love of God is a prioritizing love. That more than anything else, more than the things of God, uh, more than the people of God, more than the benefits of God, that we love God first and foremost. And so this is, as I mentioned already, it's foundational because really everything that we talk about, not only today, but for the rest of this series, will flow out of that reality that a faithful church loves God. This morning, we see a primary way that God accomplishes this is through his word. See, a faithful church, not only do they love God, a faithful church is going to love God's word. We're going to love what God has told us, what God has given to us. Through God's word, we come to know who God is, what God has done, how he's moved, and how he works throughout all of time. And so I know we just finished a lengthy series looking through a selection of the Psalms, and we're back in it again. But the Psalms is a fantastic book, um, and we're in Psalm 119 this morning. And this is an amazing, just an amazing psalm. Now, let me just give you a brief context on Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is what's uh, referred to as a Hebrew acrostic. You guys know what an acrostic is, where you take like a word and you take uh, that first letter and, and you attribute different things to it. So the author of Psalm 119 has taken all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and moves through in eight verse stanzas, unpacking different things about God, specifically for a hundred. 176 verses, he's talking about the greatness of God's word. And so, no, I'm not going to preach 176 verses this morning. We'd be here till three in the afternoon. Uh, I know my limits. And so you can just be appreciative that I didn't try to do all of that. But I would encourage you, I would strongly encourage you to go home and to read the entirety of this psalm later today, because it is amazing. Amazing. 
But here's what we're looking at. We're going to look at two, uh, two stanzas, if you will, this morning fixated on uh, God's word. And really, we could have grabbed any two. I just grabbed these two because, well, I don't know. It's just the two that I grabbed, okay? I don't really have uh, anything specific for you on that. But here's where God's word is going to move us. Listen carefully, loved ones, that a faithful church loves God's word because we love God. Okay, well, that's pretty simplistic, Mike. Yeah, that's the point. It's meant to be simple. It's meant to be easy. It's not meant to be uh, difficult or hard for us to wrap our minds around. A faithful church loves God's word because we love God. And you will see in the text here, there's a direct correlation to loving the person of God and to loving his word. Really, this, this will function as a healthy metric for us as we think about last week and we consider this idea of loving God and, and, and challenging ourselves and asking ourselves, am I willing to listen to? Am I willing to respond to? Am I willing to come under what it is that God has said? And so uh, with that, let's take a look at God's word and what God has for us here. I'm going to start in verse 89 of Psalm 119, and I'm going to read through verse 104 and would encourage you to read along. Here's what the psalmist says. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I am yours, save me, for I've sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. What a beautiful, beautiful uh, truth that God has laid out for us here this morning. So why don't we pray? Let's ask the Spirit of God to have his way uh, within us here this morning, and then we'll uh, get to the work of walking through this text. Pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you, and God, we just as we sang right before the beginning of the message, we come to hear your word. God, we come to hear you speak and to teach. God, we pray that you would uh, draw, you'd convict, you'd give life, you'd fill. God, we pray that the Spirit, your Spirit, would have the freedom to be released and to move and to be at work in and amongst your people here today. And so, God, we pray that whatever you want to accomplish, whatever you want us to see, however we need to be challenged, however you want to push or press us or how you want to encourage us, that that would be unmistakably clear here today. But God, not only for us, as we want to pray for another church in the area, I pray for Pastor Robert Browning and for Church of the Redeemer. And we thank you for this brother and for this church that desires and longs to make much of you. And so, God, we pray, we pray that you would be honored uh, within that body. We pray that you would be lifted high and that that would be a group of believers who loves you and loves your word. 
So God, come and have your way with us now. Do the work that only you can do. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, a faithful church loves God's word. And as we've already mentioned, a faithful church loves God's word because we love God. And so three things, three things that I want us to see specifically in Psalm 119 with respect to that truth. And here's the first, look at the first three verses that we're looking at, verse 89 through 91. And it's this idea that God's word is firmly fixed. The word of God is firmly fixed. That's actually what the psalmist tells us in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And then he goes on and he expands on that idea. And he says this, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. Right? The word of God is firmly fixed. I mean, we see this in multiple ways. He talks about it being fixed, that it stands fast, that it stands this day, <clears throat> that the Word of God is fixed. The psalmist is driving home the idea of permanence and stability that is found in God's Word. In fact, notice two things specifically about this. In verse 89 and 90, we see that God's Word is fixed forever. God's word is fixed forever. In fact, so firmly is God's word fixed uh, that for all of time it will not change. And then this is fascinating. Look at where the psalmist goes in verse 90 to drive this point home. He says this, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. So he's talking about, <clears throat> he's talking about the word of God being firmly fixed and he actually runs back to creation. Right? You've established the earth and it stands fast. See, here's what the psalmist is connecting. He's saying that the spoken word, God, the very words that you spoke that established the earth and that stands fast today, those same words are having the same effect and the same impact in my life and they are still holding fast today. He's connecting with what we see in Genesis 1, where, where uh, as Moses writes that over and over and over again, and God said, you remember that? And God said that there'd be light, and what happened? That wasn't a trick question, okay? Well, like, th there was light, right? <laughs> and God said, let there be darkness, and there was darkness, and God, like, let there be a greater light and a lesser light, a sun and a moon, and, and, and the, the earth and the sea, and all these other things that came to being, right? The same one, listen, loved ones, the same one who used his words to create the universe. I mean, isn't that wild? Just to think about that for a second. Like God said something and it came into being. Ice cream. Okay, I was hoping I, it didn't happen, right? I was just, maybe, just maybe God would have been really kind and let out. But see, if God said it, what would happen? We'd all be eating ice cream right now, wouldn't we? Okay. Uh, but right, the same one who used his words to create the universe is using his words to accomplish his purposes in your life and in my life today. Okay. That's great. That's kind of a fun theological nerd note. So what? What's the implication? What does that mean for me today? Here's what it means. Is that you and I can have confidence in the Bible. You and I can have confidence in God's word because it hasn't changed and he has not changed. 
Right? The same God, when you open the Bible and you read about God's character and his nature and his being and how he moved and how he responds in any situation in the scriptures, that's the same God who is actively in, at work in your life and in my life today. Because it's fixed It allows us to have certainty. It allows us to have confidence. We can know with with a steadfast faith that this is still true. I got a question for you. Who likes change? Nobody likes change, okay? Like three of you kind of did this. Uh, I don't kind of like change. The reality is no, no one, if, if you're really honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, no one likes change. The only change we like is the change that we intentionally initiate. But all other change, if it's brought on us, we do not like change. We're creatures of habit and routine. Okay, now just think about the last hundred years. And think of all the change that's occurred in the last hundred years, or maybe just even in your lifetime. Some of you are like, there's not much of a difference. Yes, there is, I promise. Okay, but you think about all of the change. And then maybe you find yourself saying things like, well, I remember when or when I was younger, which is really just an invitation to get made fun of by your children, is it not? Right? But see, we we do that stuff because change is happening all around us. And more and more and more in the speed and the frequency with which things change, we're, we're kind of inoculated to just how rapid things change anymore. And I had a moment this summer with my daughter where this kind of, kind of crystallized for me. So we were at this space museum, like outer space, this little space museum when we were in Florida. And they had, um, it, it was like a part of mission control. And so Kara, my seven-year-old, was kind of playing with some stuff. And one of the things that they had at this little station was an old rotary phone. You remember those? Okay. <laughs> If you're like rotary phone, no keypad, it had this, this, this uh, round dial that you had to turn the whole thing back to the end. Then you had to pull your finger back out and, and you know, if you were like dialing a one or a two or a three, it wasn't a big deal because it was pretty short. But if you had to dial like eights, nines or zeros, it was just like you just waited forever. And so like if you had lots of sevens, eights, nines or zeros in your number, you just didn't get called, right? Like kids either showed up and rang your doorbell or you just didn't, you were just left out because it took forever to call. So anyway, Kara is playing with this old rotary phone and she can determine that it's a phone. She's got the handset and she's like, what is this? And why would you use this? And so I began to explain to her, well, this is a phone. And of course, in her mind, she's like, well, isn't every phone a smartphone? It's like, oh, hey, no, no, baby, let me walk that one back. And her comment to me was, well, I thought space was supposed to be cutting edge. Like, why would you have something that's attached to a wall? <clears throat> and in that moment, I, I, and I'm thinking, man, I had a rotary phone when I was a kid. I don't feel like I'm that old, but I felt pretty old in that moment. Because now it's retro and cool in a different way. But things change quickly, do, do they not? And what seems firm and, and, and stable today is faulty and shaky tomorrow with an exception. And the exception is our God and his word. It does not change. It is fixed forever. And because of that, we can have confidence in what God's telling us. And so God's word is fixed forever. But notice also this around this idea of God's word being firmly fixed, that God's word is his faithfulness to all generations. 
Look at verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. And so the same Bible and the same truth that was given to the people in the Scriptures is what's given to you and I today. So the same truth that God gave to Abraham, the same promise that God's making to Joseph or to Moses, or the same ways that he's encouraging David or how he's speaking into the lives of the nation of Israel through the prophets or through Peter or Paul or whoever you want to go, the same thing that was given to them is what is also given to you and I. It's what we have today. And so when we look at the scriptures and we see how God loves his people, how God works in his people, that we can hold on to that same truth that it's playing out in our life as well. Now, let's be honest, the specifics of this play out a little bit differently. God is not going to give to you what he gave to Solomon. So you're not going to get all wealth and all wisdom. Okay, you won't get all of that. But what you will get is a gracious, kind, all-knowing, all-powerful God who's actively involved in your life in the same way that he was in Solomon's life. That God's word is his faithfulness to all generations. God's word is firmly fixed. Notice this secondly, that God's word preserves his people. Look at verse 92 through 96. God's word preserves his people. Now I'm going to read verses 92 through 96. And I want you to listen to all the different ways that the psalmist is speaking to the different ways that God has protected or preserved or watched over the psalmist specifically through the word. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And over and over and over again, the psalmist here is equating God's word to some form of preservation or protection or in some way that it is shielding him and the people, right? I I would have perished, uh, but your word uh, was my delight. You've given me life. Uh, Save me. The, the, The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I'm considering your testimonies. All these different things that are playing out. And there's this preserving component and reality that's found in God's word. That God's word protects, that God's word sustains, that God's word preserves his people. It is meant to be a shield over us. It is meant to defend us. It is meant to care for and protect us. Okay, I, I see what you're getting at there, Mike, but how does God's word preserve his people? I always love it when you ask questions that are in my sermon notes. Um, so let me answer that, okay? Uh, flip over, flip over for a moment to Second Timothy. Second uh, Timothy in the New Testament. Uh, I'm going to start at the end of chapter 3. And uh, instead of me attempting to answer this question, I'm just going to let God's Word answer this question on various ways that, that, that God's Word preserves, protects, is a shield, or watches over His people. In fact, I'm going to give you four things here. Second Timothy 3. Uh, And I'm going to start in verse 14 and move through uh, verse 5 of chapter 4. 
Now, so let me just begin to read to you what's going on here. And, and here's just a little bit of context that's important to know. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And really, this is meant to be an instruction to uh, Timothy on how to run and to govern and how to lead the church. And so Paul is writing to him saying, hey, let me help you out with this. Uh, but there's a host of things that, that, that first, in First and Second Timothy that are far more uh, helpful than just uh, to a pastor and how to uh, govern or run a church. Not the least of which is that I think he gives us a number of ways that God's word preserves his people. So starting in verse 14, here's what he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. What's that? It's the scriptures. He's talking about the Bible. And since childhood, you've been acquainted. You've been familiar with. You know what God's word is teaching you. And then notice what he goes on to say. Which are able, speaking of the scriptures, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So how does God's word preserve his people? Well, the first is that God's word makes us wise for salvation. God's word makes us wise for salvation. The scriptures help us to understand what it is that God has done, how he's moved and worked, what's our role in this, how we respond. And, and let me just push this a little bit further. A lot of times when we think about salvation, we want to think about that initial moment when we turn from sin and towards Jesus and we are rescued from the wrath of God. And, and, and that is certainly a part of what Paul has in mind here, but I think that's not the only part that he has in mind. Because this is something that plays out in your life and in my life continually. We need to continue to have God help us to understand and to know what it is and how it is that salvation is playing out in our lives. God uses his word to give us an understanding of how it is that Jesus saves us. And not just at the moment of salvation, but from the moment that we're saved until the moment that we're dead. In fact, let me press this just a little bit further. Did you know that the whole Bible is telling a single story? Did you know that? Like, it's a single story. I get that there's a host of characters and a variety of smaller narratives and and that there's poetry and songs and prayers and teaching and all that other stuff, but it's a single story. The Bible is a mosaic of all of these smaller stories that is pointing us to a single story in the Scriptures, and that story is a rescue story. It's a redemption story. It's the story of how God has chosen to intervene with the the plight of humanity. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, things are literally perfect. And then Adam and Eve sin. They reject uh, God's intention. They reject all that that God intended for them. And and the, the, the curse of sin falls upon humanity. And so starting in Genesis 3, running through the end of the book of Revelation and everything in between is the single story of how God sets out to rescue his people, namely through Jesus The Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament leans forward to the person of Christ. 
And the entirety of the New Testament leans towards the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And yes, there are bits and pieces that point us to his second coming and his return, and we love that. But the entirety of the story is about the person of Jesus. And Jesus isn't shy about telling us about this. In fact, three different times in Luke 24, we're told that Jesus is telling different groups of people, the whole of the Bible is about me. Like the whole of it is about me. So listen to me, loved ones. Abraham is not about some guy that got a great real estate deal from God and so he's moving. It's pointing us to a greater promised land. Moses and the Exodus, while a fantastic story, and we looked at this in depth in the last year, isn't telling us about uh, the the people of Israel moving into a better place or back into Abraham's land. It's, It's pointing us towards a greater Exodus. More than God taking the nation of Israel out of Egypt, the God is going to take his people out of sin and bondage and into relationship with him. David and Goliath, that story is never about you. Okay? It's never about you slaying your giants and five ways to overcoming obstacles in your life. That's not what it's about. It's pointing us to a king who will one day reign victorious over all of the enemies of God. Every single thing in the Bible is pointing us to the person of Jesus, his redemptive work on our behalf, and our need for him, and that outside of him, we have nothing. The scriptures make us wise for salvation. Here's the second thing that we see. Look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So the scriptures, God's word makes us wise for salvation. Here's the second thing that we see is that God's word leads us through life. Which is a very generic way of of, of attempting to unpack all that we see here in verse 16. God's word leads us through life. Now now make no mistake, we, we could talk about all kinds of different theological implications about the first part of verse 16. That all scripture is breathed out, right? All scripture is exhaled by God. It belongs to God. Everything in here is ultimately God's word. We can run to 2 Peter 1, talking about how God works through the authors of, um, <clears throat> of the various books of the Bible and all that. But what I want to focus on, right? We're talking about how does God's word preserve his people, right? One of the things that it does is it leads us through life. And it tells us that it's profitable and it lists four things. The first two of these things are, are more doctrine-oriented. Uh, the, think of theology, what you and I are to think, and how we're to understand what God's Word is saying to us. And the second two uh, on the list deal more with conduct or our behavior, how we're to live and how we're to speak and how we're to act and how we're to treat one another. But God's Word leads us through life. So let's just talk about each of these here briefly for a moment. First of all, Scripture is profitable for teaching. Specifically, teaching us doctrine, teaching us theology, informing us of what it is that God's Word is actually pointing us towards. So think of a mentor, think of a teacher, think of a coach that's helping you to understand something that you don't fully understand. That's part of what God's Word is going to do. It's going to help us to understand theology. It's going to understand who God is, how God works. Secondly, it's profitable for reproof. Some of your Bibles might say rebuke. 
that it's going to correct ways in which we think wrongly about God, how we think wrongly about the people of God, how we think wrongly about the work of God. But it's going to draw us back to that truth. Think of, think of this kind of like looking in a mirror and revealing what's actually there versus what we think is there. Thirdly, Scripture is profitable for correction. Now, this is not with respect to our thinking. This is now in terms of our conduct. It's the idea of restoring something to an upright state. It's taking something that's crooked and straightening it again. If you want an example or an illustration of this, think about a parent with a two-year-old, right? Over and over and over and over and over again, right? Correcting that child. And then you get to do the same thing the next day for months on end, right? But it's this idea of correcting and restoring to an upright state. And then finally, it says that the Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. And that carries with it this idea, this connotation of cultivating the soul. So think of God's Word as a gardener. And your, your heart is the soil, and God's Word is cultivating and, and enriching and nourishing what's going on inside of you. And so God's Word preserves us by leading us through life, both in our thinking and in our conduct. Thirdly, look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, or some of your translations might say competent, equipped for every good work. God's Word equips us for ministry. The effect of God's Word in our lives is, is it equips us, it helps us to be able to do the work of the ministry that God has entrusted to us. Now, in a few weeks, when we, when we get to that particular part of a faithful church, we'll unpack that further. But just know this, that if you're going, hey, I don't really know what it is that's going to propel me into the mission and equip me for ministry, this book right here is what's going to do that. And then finally this... See, a lot of people would probably stop at the end of chapter 3 and certainly wouldn't be wrong to do that. But I think we would miss, maybe in some respects, the most preserving component of what God's Word does for us is that it protects us from false teaching. I get that this is written to Timothy as a pastor, and some of this, especially the first couple verses, will sound more like it's written towards someone in my shoes, not necessarily someone in your shoes, And yet, I think this is for all of us. Let me read this to us, keeping in mind that God's Word protects us from false teaching. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. Okay, what's the charge? Here it is. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, you might say, hey, Mike, that's more for you than it is for me. And at one level, I would go, yes, that's true. At another level, I'd go, absolutely not. This is for all of us need to be people who preach the word, who are ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That should be for all of us. But I'll go with that for a minute. That Okay, that's just mine, fine. But you can't escape what these next few verses say. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. God's word protects us from false teaching. 
Now, at, at one level, at one level, I think the congregation, part of how this plays out for all of us is there should be an expectation. Listen to me very carefully to me. You should expect that on any Sunday morning, you walk into this room, that part of what happens is this book gets opened and this book gets preached. If someone were to ever stand up here, I'll just say myself, if I were to ever stand up here and tell stories and talk about some other things and give some help, self-help and any other number of things that we could talk about, but we don't open this book, I have failed. Not like 59%, I'm talking zero. Total failure. But listen to me. You fail if you don't go, whoa, 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 wait a second. Why didn't we open the book? Mike, honestly, don't really care what you have to say. Care deeply about what God has to say. Why are we not hearing from him? See, it's a two-edged sword. Yeah, the, the, the weighty part for me is making sure that I do the work and show up and preach. But you're on the hook of expecting, not only expecting that God's word is going to be preached, but look at verse 3 and 4 again. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, you have the responsibility to show up in a humbled state saying, I am willing, Lord Jesus, to be submitted to your word. I'm going to come under your word. And regardless of how hard, how convicting, how confrontive, how difficult, how much I don't want to do this, I'm going to submit myself to what your word says. And God, I'm going to ask you to help me to avoid the temptation to have my ears tickled. Let me help you. You're never going to show up to church and I'm going to tell you how awesome you are. Okay? Because the Bible just won't let me go there. Now, I might encourage us as a body, like, hey, we're doing well in this. I might push us forward in some ways. Like, man, God is really moving and working and doing some neat things in people's lives. But I'm never going to tell you how awesome you are because only God is truly awesome. And, I'm, and, and we're never just going to sit here and pretend like everything's okay. We're broken, fallen, rebellious sinners who desperately need a Savior. No one has done any favors pretending anything otherwise. And so God help us that we would let God's Word preserve us by protecting us from false teaching, whether it be hard truths, about, man, I, I, I'm struggling to believe this about God, or whether it be hard truths about, I'm struggling to change this in my life. Or I don't want to change this. Or I don't want to be different in this. God's word preserves his people. Amen? Amen. Okay, here's the final thing. Flip back over to Psalm 119. <clears throat> Kyle, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. I don't know if that's coming through or not, but um, I don't know if you just turn that down a little bit. Thanks. Here's the final thing. Look at verses 97 through 104. And in a sense, it kind of returns us back to last week, but God's word fosters a love of God. God's word will foster a love of the person of God. If you're sitting here this morning going like, man, I'm just struggling to love God. Well, you read your Bible. No, that's probably the problem. 
probably is. God's word is going to foster a love of God in our lives. Look at what he says. I mean, just listen. I mean, you can hear not only his words, but his tone and his emotion and the excitement that he has around the person of God. Let me read this. Oh, I love your law. I can guarantee you he didn't write that. Oh, how I love your law. Right? He's excited about God's word. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than yes, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you've taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. See, God's word fosters a love of God. And loved ones, you can't love someone you don't know. You can't. God's word helps us to know God. And you, as we read this, right, you just you can get this sense of the great love that this person has, not only for the Word of God, but more importantly for the person of God. God's Word fosters a love of God. Let me just make note of a few things here quickly, and then we'll wrap up and be done. First of all, look at verse 97. <clears throat> God's Word fosters a love of God. What we see in verse 97 is that God's Word permeates our thinking. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Like, I can't stop thinking about your word. I can't stop thinking about your truths. I can't stop thinking about what you said. God's word, when it has its intended effect, permeates the whole of who we are. It permeates our thinking. It informs everything that's going on around us. It's, it's the grid or the lens by which we see all things happening. But listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You have to read it for this to actually happen. You cannot be well-intentioned with respect to letting God's word permeate your life. Been thinking a lot about going back to the gym. Been thinking a lot about working out. In fact, I thought a lot. I mean, it wore me out just thinking about it. Does that count? No, you don't get any of the benefits of working out unless you do what? Unless you go to the gym, put your shoes on and go for a run or whatever it is. I was thinking about celery while I ate that plate of cookies. Does that make it healthy? No, it doesn't. Go eat the celery or go eat the broccoli. Otherwise, you just ate cookies. You got to call it for what it is. God's word permeates our thinking, but it only does that if we actually let it have access to our minds. Secondly, look at verse 98 through 100. We see that God's word remains with us. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my, te- than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I love this line. I understand more than the aged. It's just a really kind way of saying, I'm smarter than the old people, right? That's what he's saying. I understand more than the aged. Why? For I keep your precepts. See, God's word remains with us. Similar to what we were just talking about, right? But that, that there's this constancy in our lives that it remains with us, that it goes with us. 
Remember in James 1, James is talking about the distinction between being a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. He talks about a hearer of the word will hear what the word says, walks away, and what happens? Instantly forgets. And he, and he uses the illustration of, it's like looking in the mirror, turning around and go, wait, what do I look like? And that's very different than a doer of the word who not only hears what the word is saying, but begins to put it into practice, right? God's word remains with us. But notice also in these verses that not only does God's word remain with us, God's word also gives us wisdom. You could read verses 98 through 100 and start to think, this guy's pretty arrogant. Like, this guy's pretty full of himself. He thinks he's pretty special. Talking about how he's smarter than his teachers and he knows more than his teachers and he's smarter than old people. And No, no he's not saying that he is. Don't miss the text, loved ones. He's saying that this is what God's word does in him. Right? It's your commandment makes me wiser than my enemy. Verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I'm not smarter than them. God, your word is making me smart and wise. I understand more than the aged wife, for I keep your precepts. God's word is what gives us wisdom. In 101 and 102, we see that God's word keeps us from evil. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. God's word keeps us from evil. Now don't hear this, don't think of this as some kind of good luck charm. Right? That, that, that God's word is, is if, well, I read my Bible, so I'm prevented and immune from all issues today. That's not what the psalmist is getting at. God's word keeps us from evil by changing our hearts and our minds. It's the process of sanctification. That God uses his word to help us look a little bit more like Jesus than we did the day before or the week before or the month before. God's word keeps us from evil. And finally, this crescendo in a sense, look at verse 103 and 104. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. God's word brings this sweetness to our lives. There's this explicit sense of joy and delight and satisfaction and goodness that comes from God's word that the psalmist is expressing here, that it brings a sweetness to our lives. Now, let me just ask you, I'm going to ask you, I just want you to consider a couple things here as we move towards closing. First of all, I want you to think about all that God's word does. Not only what we've seen today, right, that God's word is fixed and, it, and it's preserving his people and it's fostering a love for God. But just think of all, the, all that God's word does. Think of all the, the, the ways that it's at work in your life and in my life and the people around us and whatnot. Think about all the ways or all that God's word does. And then I want you to think about for a moment, think about all that God's word is capable of accomplishing and achieving and producing within us. We just read about it. it sanctifies, it brings sweetness, it gives us wisdom, it remains with us, right? it's going to lead us, it's going to equip us, it's going to make us wise for salvation, right? all these different things that it's going to produce within us. And now I want you to think about how absolutely crazy it is 
that for far too many of us and far too often, God's word is minimized, marginalized, or relegated to some kind of secondary position in our life. Well, I'm really busy. I got a lot going on. It's hard to get to that. It's kind of boring to me. I don't understand parts of it. Listen, loved ones, at the end of the day, here's, here's what it is. You and I choose to silence the voice of God. And for what? Obviously, some other voice. Obviously, for some other thing. But if you put it that way, if you think of it that way, is, is running those errands or getting this next thing done or, or getting to this game or getting... Is it really that important that I would choose to silence the voice of God? We have the ability to hear directly from God himself and far too often we choose not to. It's like having every power tool in the world but never plugging any of them in. So imagine you came over and I'm trying to, you know, make some cuts for some project that I'm doing with some wood and I'm like rubbing the two by four against the, the saw and you're like, uh, bro, if you would just plug that in, drop it, it'll do all the work for you, man. We've completely detached ourselves from the source. And so let me, let me close. I'm going to, I'm going to, I've shared this story before at various points in time. Some of you have heard it again and, or have heard it before, and you're going to hear it again because, honestly, it's just a really powerful metaphor, I think. Um, but hopefully it's going to lead us to a better way of thinking about God's Word. So when I was in high school, well, even before I was in high school, probably when I was in middle school, there was a family that moved in across the street from us. Uh, the, the mom or the wife's name was Jane. And um, at that point, they had two, maybe three little boys. They eventually had a fourth little boy. Uh, Jane and my mom became really good friends. Actually, Jane's youngest son was really good friends with my youngest, or oldest son was really good friends with my youngest brother. And, um, and just great neighbors loved having them around and whatnot. And so after, I don't know, they'd probably been living there five, six, seven years, and Jane was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so they, um, they went through the process and did everything that was supposed to be done and surgeries and chemo and radiation and whatever else she had done. I don't remember everything, but uh, came out of that, hey, you're okay, you're good, we think you're going to be fine. And for about two years, that was the case. And then Jane went to a checkup, and the doctor told her the bad news, and, and he just said, listen, um, it's back, it's metastasized, it's throughout the entirety of your body. And he gave her a timeline of how long she had left to live. And so Jane's response, at that point in time, her oldest son was 10, her youngest, I think, was 2. At that point in time, Jane decided, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to write letters to my sons for them to read at different points in their life, because I know while I can't be physically present, I still want to be able to speak into their lives. And so she took a substantial portion of her remaining days writing letters to her sons to open up when they drove a car, or when they graduated, or when they got engaged, or they got married, or they had a child, or they, they suffered some kind of tragedy or loss or disappointment. All these different things that she wanted to speak into. Son, child of mine, I want you to be able to hear from me, even though I know I won't be present. And the thing that gets me every time I think about that I think about those boys who are now men 
Um, I think a couple of them are married now. Uh, maybe even a couple of them have children. I think about them. What is it like when they come to that point and they open one of those letters? Can you see them the night before their wedding day? reading that letter from their mom? Can you see them as they're waiting for their child to be born? Can you see them as they come to these pivotal moments and, and, and longing to hear, what would mom have to say to me about this? I can only imagine that they just devoured those letters. And loved ones, shouldn't this be our approach to Scripture? A longing to hear from our perfect father. Dad, what would you have to say to me about this? See, because I think we have to ask ourselves a really honest and probing question. Do I really believe what God says about his word? Do I really believe what God says about his word? Because if I did... Wouldn't I approach it with an urgency, with a passion, with a hunger, and with a desire that's begging for God to speak to me? A healthy church loves God's word. God, help us that we would love your word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us, God, to love your word, not at the expense of loving you, not in competition to loving you, but really, if anything, enhancing, deepening, strengthening, growing our love for you. Tell you what, in this moment, just take a minute and Confess to God ways in which you have failed to love him. Specifically with respect to your willingness to engage him through his word. Ask God to forgive you, which praise God he always does. That we treat this as something else to be done, just another chore on the checklist, another thing to be accomplished. Maybe we treat it like some kind of spiritual gold star. I read my Bible, so now God owes me or I get a prize. And ask God to forgive you that you've reduced the kindness of his gift to that level. And then ask God to help you love his word. Say, God, would you help me to love your word? Would you help me to to be committed to getting into your word? Would you help me to be committed to opening your word? Ask God to help you understand. Maybe some of this is confusing for you. Say, God, help me to understand. And then ask God that from his word, he would reveal more and more of himself to you. Where naturally the process of what God is doing would make his word sweeter and sweeter to you. And then thank him. 
That he didn't leave us in silence. He didn't leave us with nothing. But he's given us his text, his words. To know him, to love him, to follow him. With all that we are. God, help us, God, help us, God, help us that we would love your word because we love you. And all God's people said, amen.